Hey there, I'm Mike Morrison, one half of the Membership Guys and host of the Membership Guys podcast with a very special one-off bonus episode. Now, normally when you listen to the podcast, you will expect tips and advice on growing an online membership. And that's what we deliver and have delivered for over 300 episodes. But that's not what we're talking about today. This is not your usual Membership Guys content. Today we're talking about mental health. This episode is dropping right in the middle of Mental Health Awareness Week 2021. And so I want to do something I've literally never done here before. And I'm going to open up and share my story and experience with depression. Now, if this is not something you want to hear about, that is totally fine. If you want to skip this episode, that doesn't make you a bad person. So honestly, if you just want to get back to some tips about memberships, then hit skip. Seriously, I won't think badly of you. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. I'm well aware that this is not the type of content that you subscribe to the Membership Guys podcast for. So seriously, if you don't want to get into this stuff, it's totally, totally fine. I know and I appreciate that I'm asking a lot of you to, I suppose, indulge me in this opportunity to talk about this very important subject. So if you just want to get back to the good stuff, back to the tips, go for it. I still love you. I still appreciate you. I'm still thankful for you listening to the show. But if you want to keep it here with me, then yeah, we're going to dive in and we're going to get deep into something that honestly I I never really talk about. I kind of touched on it a little bit recently on the 300th episode of the Membership Guys podcast, which I did with Callie, who's the other half and who is my partner in life and in business. We, We touched a little bit on some of the mental health stuff. We made reference to the fact that, you know, I've dealt with depression in the past. Um, and you know, we both had issues, um, both physical and mental when we were starting out the membership guys. So we talked a little bit in that episode where we shared the origin story of our business, but we didn't really go hugely deep into it. And I I never go deep into it. I, I never talk about this. First of all, I'm English you know, stiff upper lip and all that sort of stuff. Also, I'm a man. I do manly things. It's not manly to talk about mental health, right? Like, no, no, you man up. You don't talk about this. And also, I'm, I'm a northerner. I'm a Geordie. If you're from the UK, you know, you, you know what a Geordie is. If you're not, you're kind of scratching your head. Google it. But we're up in the northeast. We're made of tougher stuff. I'm from a working class family, from a coal mining village. You don't talk about stuff. You don't deal with this stuff. You toughen up. You toughen up, you man up, you deal with your problems in silence. You don't whinge about them on a podcast. (laughs) So yeah, I just don't talk about this. It's not something that um, comes up often in, in conversation. It's not something I volunteer to people, but I have had history with depression. I struggled with it in a major, major way in my 20s. And it's something that, um, you know, I I carry with me day to day, um, even after these years. So yeah, it's it's a weird one for me. It's a tough episode, I think, to record. I'm kind of just going off the cuff here. So um, you will have to bear with me and indulge the fact that 
this is maybe the second or third time I'm having this conversation about this topic in as much depth as I'm I'm planning to go into um, here. And, you know, a big, big part of the reason why this rarely comes up is because obviously with the membership guys, with Membership Academy, we operate in the online business world. And in the online business world, you never want to project anything other than the image of success, right? You've all seen most online influencers. You see all these amazing things they're doing, these great results, they're getting this fantastic life that they're living. There's not much room for discussion of mental health or other challenges and other adversity. You do sometimes get the complete flip side of that. You do sometimes get people who have maybe, you know, had one or two minor challenges and they now have built a career out of just milking that. I never wanted to be someone who prostituted the adversity or the challenges that I faced. Not everyone who talks about this stuff is doing that, but if you're in the online business space, then you will have seen people who who do that, who prostitute adversity. You know, you, you have people, there's genuinely a legit example, who, you know, once upon a time, they spent three days couch surfing and then they go on and position themselves as a phenomenal success story who survived homelessness. Now, that wasn't homelessness, but, you know, they've latched on to the faintest glimmer of something that would be perceived as adversity and they, they use it as a marketing tactic. And I think I've, all, I've seen so much of this over the years that I kind of overcorrected and I've just steered totally in the other direction of, okay, I'm just never going to talk about this stuff because I don't want to come across as one of those people who's kind of coming out and saying, oh, well, hey, you know, I, I had a bit of a hard time of it once and, you know, now I, I'm amazing. So come and buy my stuff and you too can be amazing. Yeah, I never want to be one of those people. And as a result, I think that's that led to perhaps my, not allowing myself to open up about important subjects like mental health and to not use my platform to improve awareness, improve um, just the level of conversation, the level of dialogue around this sort of stuff. But over the last few years, I, I found myself having more of an itch to talk about these kind of things. There's one person in particular who I feel is to blame for this and that's a guy by the name of Chris Brogan. Now, if you're in the online business world, you probably know Chris. Chris is as old school as old school gets. He's one of those rare people who has achieved longevity in his career in the online business space, the online marketing space. Like a lot of people who were, you know, the top dogs, the people who were well known kind of towards the back end of the 2000s, a lot of those people just aren't around now because they they lack that longevity. They didn't really have much to say. And, you know, they're, they're, they're just no longer relevant or they weren't able to move with the times enough. Chris is the rare example of someone who was. Chris is still a big deal today. It was a big deal, you know, when I was kind of first really coming into the online business world around 2007, 2008, when I started actually taking things seriously. And Chris is still around today. I've had the great pleasure of speaking on the same stage as Chris, meeting Chris at an event up in Scotland, hanging out with him a couple of times over in, in um, San Diego. And he's just a great 
person, just a great human being, genuinely friendly, genuinely has time for people. And something that always struck such a chord with me is how open he's been about his past and continued fight and 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 dealings with depression um you know chris does he, he, he battles depression he talks very openly about it so i'm not kind of <laughs> I'm, I'm not revealing a secret here uh, he talks very very openly he shares his experiences it's 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 part of who he is and he he allows it to blend into the things that he's talking about it informs a lot of the the advice that he shares a lot of the stories that he'll share and I've always kind of watched in admiration about how someone who is where Chris is, who's achieved what Chris has achieved within this space, who is actually willing to admit that he has struggled and struggles with depression. Like That's just not the done thing. You don't do that. You don't talk about this. This is the secret, right? You keep it, you keep it private. But he doesn't. And so I've always watched an admiration and it's inspired me. But at the same time, it's kind of shamed me. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed about the fact that I've struggled with depression in the past. But at the same time, I've never done anything to use that experience to try to help other people. Even just to demonstrate to them that it's okay to talk about this stuff and to be an example that you can pull yourself out of the deepest of holes. It's possible to get out and put your life back on track. Now, I don't feel anyone should feel obligated to discuss this stuff. You know, I don't feel like the world has a right to know everything about you. I don't feel like it's a you're a bad person if you've had a struggle and you just want to keep that private. You just want it to be yours. It's your history. It's your story. And if it's not relevant or... It's just not something you feel you want to share with the world. I don't feel like you should feel bad for not doing that. But the reason why I say kind of Chris's openness and willingness to talk about this both inspired and shamed me is because I wanted, I've had that itch. I wanted to talk about it and to use the fact that for as much as it's possible to beat depression, I would say I, I beat it, right? This, you, you know, my, my biggest fight my biggest struggle with depression was um in the mid-2000s it was in my 20s it was over a decade ago the fight was won the knockout blow was over a decade ago and yes you know it's still it's always going to be there it's always going to be on the periphery threatening to you know resurface in a moment of weakness or whatever but it's been like a decade now and i've been on an even keel it's not been an active presence in my life as such. And so I'm probably in a better position than most who fought depression to talk about it. And I wanted to do it, but I've just held back. So we can blame Chris Brogan <laughs> for this episode. Um, what I will say is I'm not trying to give any answers. You know, if you're looking for an answer, if you're dealing with depression, if you know people who've dealt with depression, this isn't, you know, ten top tips for ten top tips of fighting depression when running your membership. Um, to follow the usual episode format, this isn't that. I don't have any answers. I've only got my story. So, I suppose we start at the beginning, right? Um, two thousand and five. I just turned twenty-two, 
and was blindsided by depression almost overnight. I actually had my life together a lot more than I think most 22-year-olds have, particularly more than, you know, anyone I grew up with had. And I grew up with on a council estate in, in public housing, single-parent family, young single-parent at that, um, no real upward mobility amongst the, the place I lived, the people I, I lived around, my friends, my family. So the fact that at 22, I actually, my life was on a good trajectory. I, I had a career. Like people from where I was from didn't have careers. You had a job. You didn't have a career. But I had a career in banking. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> it was before the economic crash. Um, so it wasn't quite as demonic a career to be in. But I had a career in banking. Um, had a solid relationship. I recently well, say recently, maybe a year or so prior, um, had gotten engaged to a girl I'd um, kind of got together with when I think we were 19. So we'd been together a few years. I had my own place. I lived in a nicer part of town, so I'd actually got out the village, something that most people I grew up with, again, they just didn't do. So everything was kind of good. And I remember being, you know, happy enough. Yeah, there was no major life event. There was no, um, you know, downward spiral. It, it just, yeah, hit me like a truck. Depression. One day in July, the alarm went off to wake me up in the morning as usual. But on this morning, something was different. I don't know what it was. I just could not compel myself to get out of bed. Just couldn't do it. I wasn't just tired and I couldn't I couldn't be bothered. Just my brain knew what it was meant to do. That was what I did in the morning. The alarm went, I got up, I got dressed, got showered, got sorted, or got showered then dressed, <laughs> and then walked to work because we lived within walking distance of work. But on this day, I just couldn't. I couldn't explain why I couldn't, but I just couldn't. It wasn't a case of, oh, no, don't make me go to that place. I enjoyed work. I liked the people I worked with. I loved my team. Again, I had a good job, good pay, good level of responsibility. It was a great company to work for. The sun was shining, a lovely sunny day in, in July. There was no reason to expect it to be anything other than a great day, but I just couldn't do it. Couldn't get out of bed. Now, my partner and I, my partner at the time, um, we worked at the same company and our house was in walking distance. We deliberately moved within walking distance from um, from work. And so we walked in together and today's walk would have been a nice walk, sun shining, five minute, five minute walk in, perfect. But eventually it came time when we'd need to leave and she'd kind of, you know, I think pushed it as far as she could before she would have to go and, and you know, run to work to get there on time. But I was still in bed and she was getting really frustrated because I couldn't explain why, what was going on. I just had no answers for her. So she called in, um, like, you know, the parent of a belligerent toddler. She called my, she called my, um, my manager, the person above me, said, I can't come in. Um, you know, I'm complaining of stomach pains. Just made an excuse like you would to, to get your child out of school. And then she went off to work and I stayed in bed pretty much all day. 
I still, I couldn't really process why. I couldn't really process anything. Uh, my brain was just in this weird, impenetrable fog. So I just lay there, literally lay in bed. A couple of, you know, slow trudges to the bathroom, and I think I maybe managed to force a slice of toast <laughs> down to, uh, to you know, sustain myself. But then it was, you know, slugging straight back to bed. And I just lay there. I wasn't sleeping. I was just lying there. Wasn't thinking about anything. Wasn't, you know, wallowing. I was just lying there until my partner got home. At that point, she was able to get me to move to the couch where I just lay there still until it was time to go to bed. So that was a weird day. Again, this just, you know, it's not like it crept up on me. The day before, just being like any other day. So this was an odd day. It was a very weird day. But I figured, slip it off, and then I'll be back to normal tomorrow. But that didn't happen. Next day, same thing. Day after, same thing. Then a week has passed. I think it was around the 10-day mark. My partner reluctantly, no, she didn't reluctantly. I reluctantly allowed her to bundle me into a car. And she drove me to the doctor's. Clinical depression. I didn't know what it was. Like I didn't know there were different types of depression. Clinical depression is what they said. The chemicals in my brain had done something screwy. And that's what was going on. It wasn't, you know, again, there was no, there was no reason for it. I wasn't sad. So they kind of figured the doctor had said there's no point in therapy because, you know, there's there's nothing we need to kind of figure out. If you're feeling like this and you said there's no cause, there's no catalyst, and, you know, there's nothing that's been going on in your life, then it's clinical, it's chemical. No point in therapy. So here, there's a prescription for Prozac. Get them down here and you'll be right as rain. Well, it took me a couple of weeks to realize that the drugs weren't working. In fact, I kept taking them the the whole time. You know, our doctor kept renewing that prescription every month. They never, from what I remember, had any effect on my mood. I do remember um, my partner ringing the doctor and outright asking, "Is are you giving them a placebo? Because, like, why wouldn't it work? Right, this, like... People take this stuff illegally because of how well it works. Like, why why aren't these these things working? But I kept taking them anyway. You know, just keep taking them. That was the doctor's advice. Keep taking them, keep taking them, and, you know, they'll, they'll kick in. Maybe you don't realize they're having a better effect um, than, than, you know, not taking them. So I did. I kept taking them because I knew if I didn't, the doctor would refuse to write a sick note, so they'd refuse to sign me off. I'd lose my sick pay, and if I didn't return to work, I'd lose my job. So as well as being depressed, I'd be depressed and unemployed. So, you know, what the hell? I kept popping those useless pills and forcing myself to go to my monthly appointments. By this point, honestly, I was pretty much a a non-entity at home. I shuffled throughout the day under a constant cloud. When my partner was home, we didn't speak. Not because we'd fallen out, we just didn't converse. We didn't interact. 
she hadn't done anything wrong. You know, she's a good person. She wasn't the cause, the source of anything that was happening. I just couldn't, again, I couldn't compel myself. I couldn't bring myself to engage with anyone or anything. At night, I'd sleep on the couch. Again, no reason. It just, that's just where I ended up. And that became a habit. I'd sleep on the couch. When she went to work, then I'd go up to bed. And most of the time, I'd just lie there, not sleeping, just kind of there. You know, barely, barely existent. I'd always thought depression was just where you felt really sad. But the truth is, at least for me, you don't feel sad. You're not bummed out. You're not upset. You don't feel any of those things because you just don't feel anything. You're numb. You're not angry. You're not frustrated. You're just nothing. Life's just kind of blank and endless beige. It's just there. Life is just something you you do <laughs> out of habit. You're on the autopilot. If you've seen the movie Get Out, then it's kind of like you're in the sunken place, right? You can see the world happening through your eyes, but you're just increasingly detached from it. And there's just kind of this abyss between you and everything else. And you can't even bring yourself to try and climb back. You're detached, isolated, bored, lonely, demoralized, unmotivated, uninspired, own everything. You're all of those things at the same time. And yet you're none of those things. You're just, ugh, you're just there. If you've never been to this place in your life, it's... It's impossible to understand. It's hard to explain, but it's got to be harder to understand. Everyone wants to find a reason for something. Everyone assumes, you know, there's there's trauma behind it. There's a an influencing factor. There's a root cause. Everyone assumes you're down in the dumps. You just need to snap out of it. But man, it's it's non-existence. It's as close to being zombified as it gets, just without, you know, eating human flesh. Um, so, yeah, it, it's impossible to understand. And honestly, nobody in my life could understand what was happening. I remember my father-in-law, well, he would then become my father-in-law later, uh, my, my girlfriend's dad. He worked with young offenders. His job was helping young offenders reintegrate to society after coming out of um, either juvenile prison or, or whatever and I think he kind of approached me and this situation in pretty much the same way I was a young man I had a I had some troubles that needed straightening out and so it's just a case of going through a process to help me re help me be a human again right help me reintegrate to society I actually remember him bringing a book around which I swear was called how not to be depressed now, it probably wasn't called that. I can't imagine anyone was ever so tone deaf as to write a book called How Not To Be Depressed. But I, that that title stuck in my head. So maybe it was. And if it wasn't, it was definitely along those lines. But it was kind of a, not a children's book, but definitely a young adult. It, there was illustrations, <laughs> which apparently, I think he just kind of thought, you know, read this and you'll be, you'll be all right, son. Okay. And yeah, for the rest of the family, I mean, everyone wanted to know what was wrong. That was the main thing. They just wanted to know what was wrong. Come on, son, you can tell me. 
the amount of times I heard that, you can tell me I'm your mum, I'm your dad, I'm your brother. You can tell me. Tell me what's wrong. And I couldn't tell them. There was nothing to tell. I couldn't describe the cloud that I was under. Some of it was because I just could not be bothered. I was just so disinterested in, again, even engaging, discussing it. And even if I was motivated to discuss it, I didn't know what it was. I couldn't, you know, I'm, I'm 15, 16 years old now. I still can't properly describe that feeling, being in that place. And of course, because I couldn't tell them, that made it worse for them. Because they just want to know what would make me better. What would cheer me up? My mum, God bless her, she would come round armed with old photographs and funny stories from when I was younger. Hoping that they'd bring a smile to my face. Hey, do you remember that time that we were in Blackpool? And your brother drank that sugary smoothie and he was up at midnight and called your, your grandparents and told your, your nana to F off. That happened. I find that funny now, but I didn't find it funny when my mum was regaling this tale, hoping it would snap me out of it. Um, I didn't mean to actually tell her that's not telling the story, but yeah, I just went into a little short memory lane there. But that's that's what it was like. My mum would come around and every time she'd bring something that she hoped would remind me of, you know, remember when you were happy? And, you know, when it didn't bring a smile to my face, she, she stopped. She stopped bringing that stuff around. And after a while, she just stopped coming around altogether. It was, you know, just she just struggled to, to, to deal with it. And the truth is, I just didn't have a good explanation. I didn't have an explanation for anyone. While I could process the fact that people in my life were being emotionally affected and were getting frustrated by what was going on with me, I was just so devoid of any motivation to try to fix that for them. I think they thought I was withholding something, that I was keeping secret the real trauma that was making me like this, that I was bottling up some feelings, and fixing me was just a case of having the right conversation or finding some untapped source of happiness for me to cling on to. I don't resent them for that. I don't blame them for being frustrated that they couldn't help me. I, I get it. I really do. So this went on for months. I, I was just in this strange, strange holding pattern. I was just here to let the minutes, days, weeks, and months tick away until the end. <laughs> you know, one day it'll all be over. And hey, who knows? Maybe tomorrow my house will get hit by a meteor. And then we'll be done with all of this. Now, to put it straight, I didn't necessarily want to die. You know, we're getting a little darker here. I didn't want to die when I say I'm just here, essentially, thinking, oh, wouldn't it just be better for everyone if the world were just blinked out of existence? It would be less hassle. At least it would be over. That was, I suppose that was kind of where I was, but I didn't want to die. I just didn't have a lot of interest in being around. So to me, at the time, not being here wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I wasn't suicidal. But honestly, it's kind of tough to say. The reason I wasn't suicidal is I just wasn't motivated enough 
to take my own life. You know, I didn't have the, I just couldn't be bothered to be suicidal. That's such a weird sentence, weird thing to say, but the only way to describe it, I, I lack the motivation to take my own life. If there was a button I could have pressed on a remote control to make everything just stop without any fuss, just poof, I'm gone and nobody will ever remember that I was here, truthfully, I would have pushed it. But I wasn't suicidal. That might not make sense to some of you, but it's the only way that I can explain. Honestly, more than anything, it was just ambivalence and habit that kept me going. It's like when you've been binge-watching a TV series. And the first few seasons were great, but then you get to the fourth season or the fifth season, and it's just meh. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just blech. It's boring, it's bland, it doesn't evoke any emotion. It's a slog to just make it through. You're just watching it because that's what you've been doing up till now. And you think about switching it off. You tell yourself you don't have to keep watching. You don't have to keep going. It would be easier if you just stopped watching. But then you have one voice on your head that says, hey, you know, it was good once. Maybe it'll get good again if you just keep watching, if you just keep going. And that's joined by another voice that says, well, you know, you made it this far. You might as well just keep going because what else are you going to do? And, you know, I, I think that that remnant, that tiny little slither, that little spark, not of hope, but of almost being resigned to the fact that it's more likely you're going to stick around than it is that you're going to check out. That doesn't sound hopeful, does it? <laughs> but, you know, making peace with the fact that, okay, I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to kill myself. Like, because that requires an effort. That requires a, a real strength of conviction. People say that it's a coward's way out, and I don't want to get too, too dark if I haven't already done it. People say it's a coward's way out. But, yeah, it... it it takes a driving force because there's a stage beyond that. There's a stage where you can't even bring yourself to do it. You're not even motivated. You are so disinterested and so detached and disconnected from life that you can't even bring it, bring yourself to put it to an end. It's kind of hard to say because I'm, you know, this stuff's, this stuff's hard. So, while it's not particularly hopeful, that almost resigning yourself to, okay, I'm I'm here. I'm going to be here. So, you know, while I'm here, I guess I might as well find something to pass the time. While I, while I wait to find out, you know, how things will turn out, whether the world ends tomorrow or whether I wake up tomorrow and as quickly as I was depressed, I'm fine again. So we just need to pass the time. And I think that, I don't remember it being kind of like a conversation with myself or anyone else, but I remember there being kind of like a gradual acceptance of, okay, I'm here. I mean, nothing's going to change with that. This isn't just something I'm going through. This isn't, you know, it's, I'm not falling into depression. I'm there. I'm at the bottom of the pit. What do I do now? Because I can't see any quick way back up. 
Maybe someone will come along with a ladder. Maybe I'll figure out how to dig myself out. But in the meantime, at the bottom, I'm at the bottom of this hole. What am I going to do so it's not as boring as as that sound, just being at the bottom of a plumbing hole? And I think that kind of became the first step on the ladder for me to get out from under this thing. So we were a few months in now since that morning in July. And I'd reached the point where my depression wasn't something that was happening to me. It wasn't changing my life. It had just become my life. Like I said, I was at the bottom of that hole. So I needed something to pass the time, something to kill the boredom. I needed a distraction. And for me, that distraction was online games. MMORPGs, Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Games. For anyone not familiar with Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Games, the most well-known of these is World of Warcraft. They are this huge live gaming worlds where you're playing alongside hundreds of thousands of people in real time, right? Like when you stop playing the game, the game continues without you. You go, you check in, and you do whatever you want. It's a big old sandbox and there's stuff to do while you're there. But, you know, it's the, there's not a storyline. There's not a set path. There's not a narrative. You never complete these games. These worlds are just there for you to participate in. Much of the gameplay is repetitive. And it's designed to occupy you for months and years. It's a true virtual world. The perfect place to disappear to for someone who just needs to check out their real life. And so there's no wonder that they appealed to me and for me it was one game in particular it was the matrix online i've always been a huge huge fan of the matrix movies and following the the trilogy of of movies in the 2000s they brought out an mmorpg set in the world of the matrix right and so you would go in there and there'd be you know agents like they are in the movies kind of running around killing people and people would be doing kung fu and all that sort of stuff. It was the world of the Matrix. The characters were in there and you, you know, you went in and you were either a machine or you were a whatever. I'll not get into it. It wasn't a great game, <laughs> to be honest, but it was a it was a great world to be in. It wasn't a fantasy world like World of Warcraft where you're a, a troll or a goblin. You know, you're a person, right? And everyone else was a, a normal person. So it wasn't so far removed from... We say it wasn't that far removed from real life, but I hope you know what I mean by that. It wasn't. It, it it was easy for it to not feel like you were just logging into a fantasy world game, right? I would spend all day and often all night in the Matrix. I think I lived more in that world than in the real one for a, a big period of time. I'd play it all day, all evening, all through the night while my fiance slept. Then when she'd wake up around 6am to get ready for work, I'd go downstairs. I'd sleep for a few hours on the couch. By this point, I'd, I'd not actually slept in my own bed for a while. And then I'd get up around midday and I'd jack about into the Matrix. And that was, that was what my life then became. Once I realised I needed distraction, something to just pass the time so it wasn't so boring and monotonous, I I went to and lived in a virtual world. And to begin with, it was purely distraction. It was just that. The gameplay of these types of games is what's referred to as grinding, right? So you're completing repetitive tasks over and over and over again to earn experience points, which unlock new skills and enable you to level up and become more powerful. 
So you log in and you get a mission to kill 20 gang members, then another one to collect 10 red watsits, then one to escort one person from A to B, then you kill 20 different gang members, collect 15 blue watsits, escort someone from B to C, and so on and so on and so on. Repetitive, grinding, it's an easy way to kill a lot of time. But hey, if life is going to be repetitive and boring, if you were going to live life on autopilot, you might as well do it in a world where you get to wear a cool leather jacket and leap over buildings in a single bound, right? So it was pure distraction. But then I started actually making friends and connections in this virtual world. I, I started chatting to people. I started talking to normal people like a normal person. My character in this world wasn't depressed. And so before long, I wasn't just logging into the game to play. I was logging in to hang out, to see my friends. And the funny thing with this game and the world it's set in, there were literally virtual nightclubs, right? <laughs> where, where people would go and you literally, your character's just standing there doing nothing. It's just an animated chat room. And there were various other little hangout spots in the game too. So I was spending hours just socializing with people who'd become my friends. It was oddly normal. Remember, this is 2005, 16 years ago. Social media really, I mean, it wasn't even really a thing. We had MySpace, Twitter wasn't around, Facebook, I believe. Facebook was 2006. Um you know, YouTube was just kind of starting or maybe hadn't got off the ground at this point. I think YouTube YouTube is fairly young. So I remember hosting a, a video recording of something from the game on YouTube. Um, so, you know, the idea of actually making genuine connections online like and real friendships online, it was less commonplace than I think it is in today's social media charged world. And it was also oddly normal. And I mentioned those virtual nightclubs. It might sound so dumb to you, but the funny thing is those virtual nightclubs played a massive part in fighting my depression. Because what do you need in a nightclub? You need music, right? Everyone was hanging out and chatting in game. They were in this nightclub space. They needed something to listen to. So me and a guy that I met through the game, we started messing around with live streaming music. So we were essentially DJing directly into the game. The other people in the game, there was a little radio station link that they could they could tune into and they could hear us. And we were in the chat and chatting to everyone and we were taking requests and we would take shout outs and it just added this whole other element uh, to it. Again, it's 2005, live streaming, that kind of thing just wasn't, it just wasn't done, right? It wasn't as easy to do either. And we didn't have Spotify, we didn't have SoundCloud, social media even. So this actually became quite a big thing. We'd organize, we'd organize club nights in the game regularly. We'd throw parties where we would be DJing, we'd be hanging out with everyone, requests, shout outs, we'd run contests and all that sort of stuff on air. And those one-off gigs, I just call them gigs. Um, <laughs> yeah, those one-off virtual gigs led to us actually starting our own internet radio station. And in a short space of time, a relatively short space of time, we had around 20 DJs on the roster. We were broadcasting this station online 24-7 with listeners up in the tens of thousands. It was, it was nuts, actually. But it was great for me because it gave me purpose. It gave me focus. 
Don't get me wrong, back in the real world, I was still useless. But in my virtual world, we were running this station like a business, managing our roster of DJs, marketing it across the gaming industry, landing sponsors. You know, we were speaking to real companies, gaming companies, heads of marketing to get them to sponsor the radio station. It all grew really quickly, and there really wasn't anything like it at the time. We got to the point where some of our DJs were actually going out into the real world to real world events. They were hosting product launch parties in the gaming industry. They were going to conferences and they were actually DJing live for an actual real audience and streaming all of that through the station. We had people going to music festivals, getting press passes, interviewing up and coming bands at the time like Paramore, Avenged Sevenfold, Dragonfalls. Some of you will know those names because you know, they were up and coming and then they came, you know, they ended up quite big. It was so weird when I think back what we were doing. But it was pretty cool, pretty awesome for, you know, nerdy stuff. And without doubt, having something to focus on, something to give me purpose, a way to be productive, however dumb others might think it was, DJing virtual parties, running an internet radio station, it made a huge difference. I really did. And I started coming out from under that cloud. I started to rebuild my confidence. Because again, I was being productive. And I started engaging in the real world again. Something else that this did was open me up to other interests. So the guy that I ran the station with was a guy from Greece called Satiris. He was a web developer by day. And he kind of took me under his wing. He taught me how to code properly, how to... Um, how to write programming language. I had a little bit of knowledge. Um, you know, I, I could throw up basic websites, you know, GeoCities and the likes of that. And indeed, I'd had a number of websites that were making me money that I cobbled together. But I'd always had more of an interest in the sales and marketing side of things from kind of the late 90s. I never really dug into the technical side, but Satiris essentially helped me to do that. I figure it was because he... It meant he could share the load on the web development side for the, the station. But, you know, this sparked something on me. It sent me down the rabbit hole of teaching myself how to design and build websites. Again, I had that basic knowledge, but I never really dove into the technical side. So Thierry's helped nurture that, and he sparked that interest that I then ran with. And I basically then taught myself, I gave myself an intensive crash course in web development over a six-month period or so. Again, it helped pass the time. So I just threw myself into it. So now, again, I've got this distraction. I've got this all-consuming thing. But it's more productive. I'm not just, you know, killing bad guys in a virtual world for 20 hours a day. I was building websites. I was starting little online businesses i was developing a skill set but to me i was just i was passing the time and i was doing something that oh i was doing one of the few things that had actually sparked something in me during this period where i really wasn't interested in much didn't realize i was laying the foundation for what would ultimately become my career years later so i was i guess you would say i was getting better in terms of depression but I definitely wasn't there yet there was still a big separation between the stuff I did online and the world I lived in there and the real world outside of that 
if anything, I think that maybe for a period of time, the online stuff, that private little world I was in, kind of made the real world stuff worse because I didn't feel I had as much meaning, value, or purpose in the real world. But yet, I felt like I had some some way I could be productive, some way, some point to the time I was spending in the virtual world and in the little world of, you know, teaching myself web development. So by this point, it had been about a year. Uh, my sick leave had run out. Uh, my employer, yeah, it was 12 months full pay sick leave, which I was extremely privileged to to have. And of course, my employer wanted answers on whether I'd ever be back. At the same time, my doctor, honestly, yeah, he'd given up. My doctor had given up. He'd accepted that the Prozac I'd been taken for a year hadn't worked, finally believed me. And so he pretty much said to me, well, the medication isn't making any difference. Therapy won't help you. So just get yourself back to work and get on with your life. Essentially just saying, okay, I'll give you drugs. What more do you want? (laughs) So, um, yeah, I was up against a wall. I was forced into a decision. Go back to work and try to function like a normal, non-depressed person. Or don't and just slip deeper into this. I chose the latter. Or more accurately, I just let the latter happen. I knew I I just could not function like a normal person. (laughs) It just couldn't happen. And I knew it couldn't happen because literally day to day I had the proof. I was just, it just wasn't there. But that slip deeper into a darker depression didn't happen. I don't know if it was just timing. I don't know how big a part was played by this second life that I created for myself in the virtual world and the renewed focus that that all brought. Don't know what it was, but something lifted me up and something enabled me to swim rather than sinking, which I just assumed was what was going to happen. A few weeks after my partner had told the company we worked for that I wouldn't be back. And by the way, I do have to say, even in 2005, when I feel there was less dialogue and more stigma around mental health, My employers were fantastic. They gave me space. They were patient. They were kind. They were understanding. They paid me for 12 months, which, you know, ensured that I wasn't put into a place where I I literally had too much pressure to even be able to deal with what I was dealing with because that might be a very, very different story if I had that weighing on me too. So I, I feel I was extremely lucky. Um, with with my employer and how they approached it and uh, and all of that and yeah I know not everyone has that privilege so anyway yeah a few weeks after my partner told the company I wouldn't be back um, I found myself having the itch to do something I hadn't really had that in a while but I had that itch to take action take control of my life I didn't know what it was that I wanted I, I didn't know what spurred it on but I, I just didn't feel as detached, as ambivalent. I felt a little bit of drive to change things. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't back to normal. Far, far from it. But I was definitely showing signs of life again. 
And then suddenly, all those signs of life, all, all those things came back at once. Like all of it. Pretty much overnight. Excitement, optimism, focus, positivity. It flooded in. And it was kind of disturbing. It was like a dam had broken and everything that had been missing from me on the inside just came flooding in. A flood is the only way I can describe it. Honestly, that was almost as worrying as that first slump into depression. Because I kind of felt like I was bordering on delirium. Someone who could barely drag his ass off the couch one day is suddenly bouncing around and making huge decisions and life plans the next day. And I kind of flip-flopped. I moved in and out of both states for a few weeks. Genuinely, people were worried that I was actually bipolar and that it had just been triggered, right? But it, it evened out. It evened out into some semblance of normality. And before I knew it, my life was moving forward again. It was imperfect. It was still kind of fractious. It was still kind of fragile. I was still not all the way back. But I was back enough. Now, while my life was moving, and now, you know, felt like it was starting to get some direction again, that's not to say it was moving in the right direction. I mean, these big life decisions I was making, one of them, the first one, I decided I was going to be a wedding photographer. I had zero photography skills, zero photography experience. I just decided that that was going to be my new career path. So when I say it was a weird delirium <laughs> that's what i mean i'm gonna be a wedding photographer <laughs> like of course you're not dude but then i decided i was going to go back to university i actually dropped out of university first time around when i was younger it just didn't it didn't hook me i wanted to be out there i wanted to be actually doing something not just reading books but i'd always kind of had that thing of like yeah what if and so i decided okay i'm going to go back to university and yeah, I, I did that. For some bizarre reason, I chose to study criminology and forensic science. Honestly, I have no idea why. It just sounded interesting. And I think, again, I was, I was in this mode of, I need distraction. I need something interesting, something different, something that's going to challenge me, something that's going to keep my head in the game where I'm not going to feel I can coast because if I coast, I'll slip. And if I slip, I'm back in depression. And if I'm back there, I might not get back. So I've got no idea why I, <laughs> why I went back to do a degree in criminology and forensic science. But at least I was doing something. I was getting dressed in the morning. I was leaving the house. I was in the real world. We moved in with my partner's parents for a while, which, while being a step back also kind of felt like the next phase of easing myself back into the world it was a way of keeping the stabilizers on while i tried to remember how to function like a regular human again oh and my partner and i we got married too in retrospect that was a terrible decision made at the worst possible time and one that we both since admitted to each other that we regretted almost instantly as in we were both reading wedding vows thinking why are we doing this but yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and more time passed, and increasingly, it felt like my experience with depression was behind me. In truth, it's more like it was on my shoulders, 
always kind of threatening to take control again. Sounds maybe overdramatic, but yeah, I was I was still very raw for a good few years after kind of coming out from the the main fog of it all. After a year or so of living at the in-laws, we moved back into our own place again. I'd continued learning web development as a hobby, which then became a side gig, which then became so big and such a big part of my life that I had to decide whether to continue at university or whether to go freelance full-time. I chose the latter, and that was the real start of the next chapter of my life. It was only a year or two later that myself and my wife at the time separated. Uh, through all of this, we really, we'd just become completely different people, and we just didn't belong together. It ended amicably. It ended positively with a smile. We stayed friends for a while after. Despite that, uh, I've got to admit, I, I've carried a lot of guilt over the years, even now. So far removed from it, I still carry guilt about feeling like I I, I wasted her time. Like I, I ruined a peak period of her life. You know, when we met, she didn't sign on to be lumbered with any of this. We were 19 when we got together. We were kids. I was 22 when depression hit. 22? What the hell is going on for you to be clinically depressed at 22? Right? Like, that's where my brain was at. And sometimes when I think about it, that's where my brain goes back to. You're 22. You're not meant to deal with this stuff at that age. You're far too young for it. She was far too young for it. And that's a lot, a lot to shoulder. And I know it was my struggle, but it was hers too. She went for a couple of years of, you know, the person she was engaged to suddenly just vanishing. I, I, I checked out from real life. I checked out from the world. I didn't exist. I wasn't there. Her aunt, who she was very, very close to, died. And I could barely you know, put an arm around her to comfort her. That's, that's who I was during that time. That's what she had. So I've always felt guilty about that. Genuinely, even now, I still, still feel guilty. And even, you know, when I came out the other side of it, I, I was a different person. My personality genuinely changed almost entirely. Beforehand, I was a raging extrovert. Now, I was massively introvert. Before I was full of energy, I was the life of the party. For years, after fighting depression, I turned into, honestly, someone who was, for a while, pretty timid. I, I don't, that's a weird, weird, weird thing. I became really timid in the three or four years afterwards. It was only when I kind of realized that about myself and it's weird to be, you know, six foot two, northern, built like a brick outhouse, <laughs> to be quite timid, quite nervous, quite shy, quite reserved. I used to be really laid back. My mum used to say I was so laid back, I was horizontal. But after I got out from under depression, I was just this constant ball of anxiety, overthinking the smallest little thing, always worrying about stuff. So I was very, very different, and a lot of the, I think it's evened out, you know, a lot of the the 
kind of less desirable, more negative changes. I think my personality went through during that period. Um, you know, I've kind of gotten a little bit back to how I was, you know, I don't consider myself particularly timid these days, <laughs> but you know, there was a period where someone brought me the wrong meal at a restaurant. I would just eat it. I would get on with it because I was just couldn't bring myself to make a fuss to draw attention. Now, not a chance. But yeah, it's just it's weird how stuff like that happens. So I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I felt and I still do feel, rightly or wrongly, that I kind of stole her youth from her. That sounds really reductive and almost, you know, I don't want to suggest that she didn't have agency, but she was a good person. She wasn't. She wasn't going to walk away from me when I was going through through that stuff. You know, she had the the strength to stick with me. But sometimes I wish she hadn't. Kind of for her sake. She could have found someone better. She should have found someone better without the baggage. Her wedding should have been special, not something that's tinged with regret. Like I burned her 20s. And I'm clear-minded and I'm logical enough to know that a lot of this is nonsense. But I do still feel I'll always carry a bit of guilt, rightly or wrongly. I never beat depression. I'm not depressed now. I've not suffered from depression for a very long time, but it is always on the periphery. I always have to be mindful. I have to live my life and make decisions with an awareness and an appreciation for what I went through because it's it's still there, lurking, waiting to be let in. Again, that sounds, sounds dramatic, but... It is true. You know, I spoke on episode 300 of this podcast. Me and Callie did a special episode where we talked about the formative years of our business, which coincided with the formative years of our personal relationship too. And I spoke in that episode about a period of time where we were burning ourselves out. We were running ourselves into the ground, working crazy hours, dealing with insane clients, demanding deadlines, that whole period was an all-you-can-eat buffet for my little depressive devil on my back. Truly, I was on the verge. Maybe I tipped over a few times heading back to that place. But because Callie knows what I went through, we've talked about it. She was able to spot it. She was able to pull me back. That's why it's important that you talk to other people. That's why it's important that we normalize conversations about depression and other mental health issues, because when they hit, you're usually not going to be in a fit condition to save yourself. You need someone who knows what to look for, someone who's got your back, someone who can throw you a rope before you go under. Because honestly, I always say, and I said at the beginning of this, That my depression blindsided me, that it came out of nowhere, but the scariest thing. So it's scary to think that you can just wake up one day and in the click of a fingers you are clinically depressed and you will remain under that quicksand for years. That's scary, but the scariest thing, when I say my depression came out of nowhere, the scariest thing is I don't know if that's true or not. It's how I remember it. But I don't know if that's how it happened. Maybe there was a gradual decline, but I just didn't realize it. I didn't spot it. 
and people around me didn't spot it. I honestly don't know. I don't know if they were glaring warning signs for weeks, for months, but no one knew what they meant. Least of all me. That to me is scarier. That to me is scarier than the thought that it can just take you in an instant. Because when something like that hits you out of nowhere, you can at least tell yourself years later, there's nothing that could have been done. No one could have changed anything. But what's scarier and more troubling is maybe there was something. Maybe someone could have pulled me back from the brink. Maybe I wouldn't have lost two years. And don't get me wrong, for as hard as that was and for as much as it you know, affects your life going forward, I wouldn't change it because it's a part of my story. It's it's where I, it's how I am where I am. And as I kind of said, you know, I I basically forged a new career out of the ashes of, you know, all the other things I kind of burned down. So there'd be no membership guys if I, you know, wasn't in a depressive slump on the couch for two years. But maybe it could have stopped. Maybe it could have been prevented. Maybe, you know, my ex-wife might have had a happier period in her 20s. You know, maybe I wouldn't carry the guilt. So that to me is scarier. That to me is scarier. The fact that they might have been alarm bells ringing for a month, but just nobody heard them because they didn't know what they meant. So you've got to talk about this stuff. If you've dealt with depression before, you've got to talk to people about your journey, your story. And if you haven't dealt with depression, you've got to educate yourself. You've got to listen. You've got to be accepting of and open to these conversations. You've got to not skip this podcast episode when it came up in the feed. I know I said at the beginning for the people who skipped it, then it's okay, but you know, it's their prerogative and I don't, I'm well aware that it's a luxury being able to put this episode out to an audience who did not come into this relationship with me under the agreement that they listen to me talking about mental health. But hey, they've skipped to the next episode. You're still here. So when I say you need to have these conversations, you need to have these conversations. You need to listen to people like me. You need to listen to people in your life who dealt with depression. You need to understand what it feels like. You need to understand you can't fix it. You need to understand that doesn't mean you failed. You need to not demonize or stigmatize mental health challenges. Got to talk about this stuff. So these days, life for me is very, very different. I've deliberately changed things in my life and almost designed my life, my environment to be free from stress, free from drama, free from triggers. We have this kind of silly philosophy in our business about living what we call the snug life. (laughs) Not just because it sounds like so cheesy and nerdy. It is. It's nerdy. It's tongue in cheek. But in, in truth, this idea of living the snug life, it's really at the heart of what keeps keeps us on an even keel from a mental health perspective, um, from a physical health perspective. And this snug life, it's something we, we generally want to help other people achieve because we know what happens when you are ground down. 
So this idea about designing a life that's free from stress, where you're not constantly grinding, you're not hustling 24-7, you're not working yourself to the bone, a life and a business where you enjoy what you do and you enjoy the fruits of those labours, where you're at ease, you're comfortable. You can take a whole week off to play video games if that's what makes your tail wag. You're happy, you're at ease, you're chilled out. You're living that snug life, baby. (laughs) And this mindset, this approach to life, it's not one that we've only just embraced since our business has achieved the success that we're blessed with now. I really want to emphasize that. It would be very easy for me to come from a position of extreme privilege right now with a business that makes millions and say, well, hey, you know, have you ever thought about just not being depressed? So I want you to know that that's not what's happening here. In fact, it's because of this philosophy that we are where we are. When we were still freelancing, when we were running our nice little agency and we were burning out, we had crazy amount of stress, crazy amount of pressure, nightmare clients, demanding deadlines. We just hit this point where we'd had enough, where we knew that we were risking our mental and our physical health being in that constant hustle mode, constantly grinding. And so we just had that conversation. If certain types of projects are burning us out, how about we just not take those type of projects on? If certain types of people, certain types of clients were causing us stress, how about we just start turning those types of people away and we only work with people who aren't a total pain in the butt? So we flipped it. We took control of our own business We decided what rules we wanted to play by and we started owning that. We started playing by our own rules and that totally changed things for us. We started enjoying what we do more, working on more fulfilling projects, having the freedom and the flexibility to work when we want on whatever we wanted. And that gave us space to start the Membership Guys, which then led to Membership Academy, which takes us to where we are today. So you can do all this, you can create a life where you're, where you're snug. You can create that snug life at any point. You just have to be mindful of the things that can damage your well-being, damage your mental health, make you unproductive, make you hate what you do. So day-to-day life for me now is pretty calm. I'm really stressed. I'm really bored. I'm really unfulfilled. I'm really unhappy. I've got good people around me. In Cali, I have a fantastic partner in crime. We built a life and a business we enjoy that lets us live in a way that safeguards both of our well-being. That's it. It's all about that snug life. (laughs) But such a big part of that is coming to terms with discussing and understanding my journey with depression. Even though it's not reared its head in a big way for the best part of a decade, it doesn't mean I can take anything for granted. I'm always mindful. I'm always aware And I work hard on being self-aware enough to make adjustments if I start to wobble. And again, a huge, huge part of that is the fact I've been able able to openly and honestly discuss it with Callie. I've not done that with many people other than her. Well, until now, where I'm now having that conversation with thousands of people. (laughs) Kind of going from 0 to 60. You guys literally listening to this, other than, I think genuinely, other than Callie, and other than my fiance from the time, ex-wife, who was there, and even then, you know, she just got kind of the first two acts of the story. 
genuinely, I'm thinking now, nobody else, nobody else has had this conversation in this, certainly not in this amount of detail, in this amount of depth. So, yeah, going from 0 to 60. Now I'm suddenly becoming quite, quite nervous and quite anxious about hitting publish on this. But I will do. Because I think having these conversations, being matter-of-fact about it and not pulling punches, which uh, I hope has come across. I know I've covered some stuff that maybe goes further than most people would feel comfortable in discussing it with. But I think not being worried about people will think, or will this hold me back in my career and make people think less of me? Or, you know, are people suddenly going to think I'm going to snap at any minute or that I'm always sad or whatever? I think these conversations, this openness, this normalization of talking about mental health is important and a big, big part of why I've had this itch and why I said, you know, people like Chris Brogan and his openness inspired but also shamed me is because I recognize the position of privilege that I have. I recognize that... I can talk about this stuff without fear of someone kind of thinking, oh, well, we don't want to work with him. Well, actually, my business is far enough on that if one person listens to this, thinks I'm not going to join Membership Academy because I don't want to be around someone who's dealt with depression. Do you know how little I care about that? <laughs> like, okay, I don't want you as a member. And I, yeah, I'm privileged to be in a place where where I can welcome that. I will welcome anyone listening to this who has turned off doing business with me. I will welcome that because you just, you've made my life better by helping me avoid an idiot. I nearly swore. But I know you guys who listen to the episode and honestly, if you got to this point an hour or so in, you're not that kind of person. And so when I talk about, you know, feeling ashamed of the fact I've not really used my platform, it's part for that reason. It's because actually now, like, the stakes for me to share my story, the potential negative effects on me are minuscule. So I can use my platform. I can reach hundreds of thousands of people to talk about this, and it will not affect me. It will not affect me in a negative way in any way, shape, or form. Not everyone can say that, but at the same time, you don't need to put it out there on a podcast. You don't need to put it on a page on your website. You don't have to share your story or share your struggles with the general public, but share it with the people around you. Share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your loved ones. Talk about this stuff. You need to have these conversations. Man, you seriously need to have these conversations. You really, really do. Even if you think it's in the rear view mirror, even if you think you've got it under control, talk to people, tell people what you've been through so they know what to look for and they can help keep you right. And I can only speak from my experience as a man, but I know that as a group, we definitely don't talk about it enough. The fear of it not being a masculine thing to do. The stigma that if you're a man and something like this hits, it's because you're weak, you're not strong enough. Where are your muscles? Where's your manliness? I mean, that's BS, right? We all know that, right? We need to dispel all of that. And while I'm not under any illusions of thinking 
that one podcast episode from a random dude from Newcastle is going to make any real impact in the world. I feel that more of us who tell our story and add our voice to the discussion, the more chance that we all have of actually changing the dialogue for the better. So that's it. That's my journey with depression. I don't feel I've struggled as much as some people have. But it's not competition. (laughs) You know, this isn't the adversity Olympics. It's not about, you know, proving that one person's had it worse than another. Similarly, if you dealt with depression where it's been to a much milder level, that doesn't mean that you have less right to talk about it. We've all got our own thing. So I want to say a big, big thank you again. I've named up him a few times. I'm going to thank Chris Brogan because genuinely this isn't blowing smoke up anyone's behind, but genuinely he is one of, the, he's actually the lone voice. I can't think of a single other person in my world who openly and frequently and matter-of-factly without any attempt to spin it into a marketing angle talks about depression. That has been genuinely inspiring and it's been inspiring for a few years and I'm sorry it took me this long to add my voice to the discussion but better late than never. All right. I don't really know how to end this. There's not going to be a little promo jingle for the Academy like there usually is and I feel I've kept you long enough. We're running over an hour now. If you made it this far, then um, just know I truly, like deeply, deeply value you just listening to me. I really, really do. Even if you shake it off and kind of think, oh, well, <laughs> that was an hour I'll not get back. Hey, at least you listened, right? Um, and yeah, more people need to listen, but more people need to speak. It is Mental Health Awareness Week when this episode goes out, but it will continue to remain within the feeds in perpetuity. So you may be listening to this at a random day in December in 2024, But I hope whenever this reaches your ears, it's been of some use. It's been helpful. And hopefully it it does a couple of things. One, demonstrates that for all, particularly in the online space, for all the veneer of perfection, it's okay to be imperfect. Hey, guess what? You can still be successful. And hey, guess what? You can still be more successful than some of the people who look like they've got everything together. It also shows a lot of people, you know, I had this funny reaction after episode 300 where we had messages from people kind of say, I would never have thought you guys had dealt with depression, dealt with physical challenges. And, you know, we didn't, um, we didn't talk about that a whole lot in episode 300. We just touched on it a little, but there were people contact us who kind of just said, we just assumed that because you guys are successful at what you do, then you've got it all figured out. I've had people say that they felt like such a fraud, that they really struggled with imposter syndrome because, you know, they'd, they'd had some challenges because they were struggling with certain things because they were dealing with things like depression and they felt like an imposter because they felt someone like them didn't deserve to be successful, didn't deserve to, you know, market themselves in a way that didn't come with a disclaimer saying, by the way, 
by the way, I've had depression. Just thought you might want to know that before doing business with me. Like <laughs> that kind of thing. So I hope it just, I don't know. I'm not setting out with a, an ultimate mission other than just to talk about this, but I hope it kind of shows it's okay that, you know, having, like, having deal, uh, dealing with this stuff, having dealt with this stuff, isn't like a black mark on your record. It's not a, it's not a weakness. If anything, it's a strength. I, yeah, I wouldn't be where I was without this horrible black cloud that I lived under, or I didn't even live under, that I just scraped by under for that period of two or three years and that I still can kind of see in my peripheral vision. I would not be where I was today. So while I'm not going to, you know, put a banner saying, yay, depression, everyone, think of the saddest thing you've ever thought of. <laughs> It's okay if this is part of your makeup. All power to you. But talk about it. Share it. Speak to your loved ones. Make sure they know what you've gone through. And if you're on the other end of this, just listen. Just be patient. Don't beat yourself up because you can't fix it. Don't try to fix it. You can't fix it. It's not your job to fix it. Be there for the people in your lives. Yeah. That's it. For those who've listened, thank you so much for listening. For those who whose fight with whether it's depression, whether it's other mental health challenges, for those whose fight is more recent, those whose fight is happening right now. I know I can't say any magic words that will make everything okay for you, but stay strong. Cling on to whatever the hell it is you need to cling on to. Just hang on. There's always a way back. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for indulging me. Um, hopefully I've not bummed you out too much. <laughs> hopefully you're taking something of value from this and hopefully this encourages, even to hell with it, even just one person has a conversation after listening to this episode, then I'm happy. So that is it from me. We will be back to regular scheduled programming. Um, yeah, it, it's weird throwing this bonus episode out there because it's such a shift in tone. But we will be back to normal um, next week and beyond with your usual weekly dose of proven practical tips and advice on growing your membership. Thank you once again. I'll see you all soon.